Father, help. Help one who is but dust with your life in him. Help one who's a product of the fall and now a product of redemption. Help one who is reminded that apart from the Lord Jesus can do nothing. Help because extra people have come today who may or may not know who you are and what the big deal is about Jesus. Help because men and women are spiritually blind, unable to see and therefore appreciate the glory of the gospel. Men and women have been under attack by the enemy who's added to that regular blindness a blindfold for extra measures so that we can't see the beauty of Christ. God, for your name's sake, put Jesus Christ on display. Give people a extra dose of attention span and a heart that's receptive to truth. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. A couple things. Um, man, we're hoping that whoever, like, we usually get a nice little contingent that at like 110, like, creeps out. Uh, we have a lot of bread and wine here, so please stay. Um, and um, we just really want to culminate together in this fullness, so hopefully you won't get antsy at one. Um, we shouldn't be out too much longer after that. Uh, two, um, I decided to do something different. Um, one of the things we never want to be is in bondage to the expectations of people or cultural norms. So every now and then we'll get to a day that you traditionally hear or see something, and we won't do that. Uh, last week we didn't pass out palms, um, and we sort of felt like, Hey, afterwards, like, man, I bet you some people are disappointed they didn't get a palm. Um, and yet we didn't do it. And, um, and then this Sunday, uh, we were going to just continue in our series in Galatians. Um, and um, wasn't going to feel bad that we didn't preach a sermon on the resurrection. Um, but then I had to do a uh, Good Friday uh, message. And it sort of sucked me into the resurrection theme and I got so rocked by it, I decided to switch the message and actually bring our attention to the resurrection today. So I'm praying that God sovereignly trumped my own plans for your benefit. So uh, may he bless today. Uh, a lot of people here, a lot of people, a lot of the kind of people we hope would come and check us out. We have a couple of demographics we hope will come week after week. One is the hard rock who looks like if you saw them on the train, you probably would think they can't be saved. Um, we keep wanting that kind to show up here. Um, and we want them to show up here like they look out there. Um, and so we get excited when, for those of you that look like you're not saved. The others is the the generation that that uh, the the older generation that looks like y you wouldn't really want to be around a place where so many people look like they're not saved. 
So we like it when the older generation comes and dwells among us for a while. Um, and we are praying that some of you will, uh, will make this your place of community because, trust us, we don't want to just be left with just a bunch of 30-somethings on down having a cool, hype, hip church with no seasoning of those who've lived beyond us. So if God does allow you to humble yourself and hang with people who you probably have kids our age, um, but what if God were to do a work of grace in all of our lives because of each other in each other's lives? So um, that's one of the things that we like to see. So I'm just excited, and um, let's dive in to the Word of God. Um, first, I want to start just by um, reiterating a passage that was read uh, this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. This is what we call Resurrection Sunday. Um, of course, the world um, has given it another nickname, uh, Easter. Um, but we do want to reemphasize this is uh, the, uh, the time where believers throughout the ages have commemorated Jesus Christ getting up from the dead on the third day after he was crucified. And I want to just read something as a springboard into what we're going to look at today. Yes, yeah, right. Big up skillings. Yeah. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Please read with me, then we're going to jump over to where we're going to spend our time. Verse 12 of chapter 15 says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, everybody doesn't believe in a resurrection. And that is back here and today. But Paul says, but wait a minute. If, if Jesus got up from the grave, how is it that there's, there's a rumor that there is no such thing as people getting up from the the dead. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ, too, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Well, if that's the case, then after all of that singing, which was irrelevant, but it sounded good, you would think we could leave now. Because if Christ is still in the grave, just a, a, a collection of DNA still up in his tomb somewhere, why am I up here and why are you out there? Why are we going to church and why are we running around here believing in Jesus? He says if he's still in the grave, then we're tripping. Verse 15, we are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. He says, verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So bottom line is the reason why we're about to look at and the reason why we continue to celebrate the resurrection, because if there was no resurrection, we're playing church for nothing. We're just having fun. We're just liking each other on a day of the week. And when we die, 
we're going to wake up in that holding cell that Pastor E was talking about, only to be tossed in that lake of fire because we're still in our sins. Flip over to Matthew. Matthew 28. Well, 26, excuse me. Matthew 26. Now, th- I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. Please take the pressure off me. I, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta slow roll this thing today because I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to rush because of time sensitivity and miss the flow of this message. It's been said that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing, right? The only problem with that is it's also been countered that believing affects what you see. So it's not seeing, it's believing. It's based on what you believe that will often determine what you see. If you don't believe in a resurrection, if you see somebody who's resurrected, you'll say it's a ghost. But if you believe in a resurrection, if you see somebody who's resurrected, you'll say, see, I told you. Seeing is believing. So believing will affect what you see, and then believing will determine what you see. A similar truth is this. When you already know the answer, the questions are not as confusing. Last night, we were playing a crazy game, some of us, called Cranium. Cranium has a a bunch of things you can choose, tasks. You can make clay and you can just guess if it's true or false. Or you can go to word worm, worm word something. And one of those things is they give you a blank or a puzzle with some stuff missing and yours and they give you a hint and you're supposed to guess what the word is well all of us agreed since we kept getting stumped on this one that for those of us that knew the answer when we saw the puzzle we weren't as intimidated we were like oh i see it right there because we knew the answer but when you didn't know the answer the puzzle tripped you up you were like what is this All of a sudden we find ourselves saying, man, if only I knew the answer. When you knew the answer, the answer seemed to jump up out of the puzzle. You didn't even have to work the puzzle. You saw it without working through the puzzle once you knew the answer. See, I can see the answer right embedded in this puzzle. Truth is like that. Sometimes things will confuse you. You'll be puzzled about something. But when you already know the answer, even in the midst of the confusion, the answer seems to jump out at you. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was puzzling for people. As he was going through, from the moment he was arrested to the moment he gave up his spirit, people were confused. It wasn't until after when we got the resurrection that we were provided with the answer. Now, if you have the answer of the resurrection in your soul, when you go back and look at the crucifixion, you're no longer confused. In fact, you see something totally different. And today what I want to do is based on the resurrection being the answer, I want to re-examine the crucifixion. Hmm. I want to re-examine the crucifixion. The The resurrection becomes for us then a prism. A prism that reveals something we wouldn't have ordinarily seen because this is what a prism does. 
A prism is an instrument that white light passes through. Once light passes through the prism, all of a sudden, all these colors that are in white light, the white light is basically the sum total of all of them reflecting off each other. But once it goes through the prism, the prism sort of breaks it down so you can see all the colors that make up the one light. Well, the one deed of the cross goes through the prism of the resurrection. All of a sudden you see all these layers of beautiful truths that you wouldn't have seen if it didn't go through the prism of the resurrection. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the cross because it's the, 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 the people of Scripture, Paul in particular, that often said, we don't even preach anything else but Christ and Him crucified. You would think he'd say, we don't preach anything but the resurrection. But he didn't. He said, we preach Christ and him crucified. But the whole given is the cross, Christ and him crucified, when shining through the prism of the resurrection, you don't even need to hammer away on the resurrection because you already know that the resurrection is the prism that helps you appreciate the beautiful truth of the crucifixion. We don't marvel at the triangular shape of a prism. We don't marvel at the fact that it's glass. We say, hmm, cute. But what we marvel at is what the prism allows us to see. So when you see in Scripture, people are not as elaborate and detailed about their account of the resurrection. They're elaborate in their detail of the crucifixion. But the resurrection is there because it's the prism by which we understand and appreciate the, the, the crucifixion. Go to 28. I'm going to read six verses, and then we're going to backtrack. We want to look at our prism. 28 of Matthew. And I'm choosing Matthew because Matthew focuses on the agony of the Messiah, which is what you, people can stop there and looking at the agony, but it's not until you get the prism that you see more than just the agony, but the, the triumph. But let me just read. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where we lay. Really, it just scurries on to go tell somebody that. See how quick and how short and how succinct and how, hmm, wasn't really, you can't, what you going to do with that? You're going to backtrack and you're going to reexamine this beautiful truth that starts in 26, 32. And this is where we're going to spend our time. This is where we're going to spend our time. We're going to look at the crucifixion through the prism of the resurrection. In your Bibles, it probably is tagged the crucifixion right over starting verse 32. 32. And it starts like this. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. First of all, let me tell you what the prism does. The prism just allows you to not be afraid of the puzzle. Of the puzzle. The puzzle is that which may confuse you. Anybody that had placed their hope in Jesus Christ was confused from this point if they weren't confused from uh, prior. Anybody here... What? Matthew 27. 
That happened to me at the that happened at the church. I told him 27, and the man said um, 26, and now I just did what he did. Matthew 27. I'm sorry. Matthew 27, 32. Now, one of the things, we're not afraid of the puzzle. First of all, one of the things that you see is we're looking at a crucifixion. It would be bad business for Jesus Christ, who's on a campaign for life, to wind up in death. We're looking at that today. The slightest little thing can nullify your whole campaign. If you're looking at the campaigns, I'm about change. And then they'll go and they'll dig up one little place where you didn't change and say, your whole campaign about change is null and void because I found the spot where you weren't about change. Your campaign can be about experience, and they can find one place where your experience wasn't really experience, and now your whole campaign on experience has been nullified. Well, this will be bad business for Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ said, I have come that you may have life and that you can have it more abundantly. And now here you are. We find a place where you're on your way to your death. This is bad business, but for the believer, we're not afraid of the puzzle. See, we have the answer. It's the, the resurrection. So when we look at this, now the, the, the answer jumps out even in the puzzle. So we are looking at a crucifixion. This is, there's no cover-up. Some cults, some false religions say that Jesus never died on the cross. For them, they can't handle that. They don't like that. They don't have an answer. They don't believe in the resurrection. Therefore, it would be too uh, damaging to have a Messiah, a holy man, especially somebody of great stature and esteem like Jesus, to fall victim to the hands of men. So they have no crucifixion or resurrection. But for those of us that buy into the resurrection, we don't mind the crucifixion. We have a crucifixion here. Osama bin Laden. We don't know if he's alive or dead. All we know is he keeps coming out with warnings based on old footage, though. So I'm not, I'm not too convinced because he, he ain't updating his visual. Hey, he said, yo, y'all, come on, everybody, fight the infidels. Well, he'd been saying that back then. And it's always the same footage. But they won't tell us whether he's alive or dead because it would be detrimental to his movement if he's dead. We don't have a problem with the Christ who was crucified. That's why the angel said, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. The resurrected Jesus in Revelation told his people, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, who was dead and not alive, and now alive. We don't have a problem with a Jesus who died when you look through the prism of a resurrection. Galatians 3, we've been in Galatians 3. He says, hey, Galatians, it, like you clearly know it was before you that Jesus Christ was, was clearly portrayed as crucified. We need a Savior who was crucified. We're going to see why as we keep going. We're not afraid of the puzzle. First of all, this crucifixion we know was so excruciating. You need backdrop. Was so excruciating that the mere fact that he's being crucified lets you know something serious is going on here. The fact that it's been perfected by the Romans, uh, just in case you all haven't got the details on the crucifixion, you died either from too much blood loss or from the fact that you couldn't breathe anymore. Uh, that's why they beat you and they scourged you. They, if you saw the passion of the Christ, you saw it. Uh, they whipped you till so much blood came out that it would speed up your, uh, your, your inability to sustain yourself on the cross, which would speed up your inability to breathe, which would speed up your death. Even though speed up is a relative term because some crucifixions lasted for days because they were into the torture of it. This is the crucifixion that we don't have a problem with because we have a resurrection. 
Now, let's look through the prism and see why we don't have a problem with it. First of all, when you, if you don't have a prism, all you'll see is an obvious weakness, an obvious weakness. Verse 32 of 27 says, They found a man named Simon from Cyrene, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. Obvious weakness is here. And without a prism, that's all you would see. And we want you to know that in the Bible, fleshly weakness is often God's means of showcasing a strength that resides beyond the flesh. Right now, God is doing things in your lives where he's trying to up the ante of your weakness so that he can showcase a strength that's not your own and that's not hinged on your flesh or your physical. And Paul said, I used to pray on mad occasions that God would take away my weakness in the flesh. And God said, nah, because my grace is sufficient for you. He says, in your weakness... My strength is made perfect. People see my strength when you're weak. Well, that's what we see here. So we don't have a problem with this weakness that we see. But not only that, because we don't have a problem because we see the strength of an obedient will. The strength of an obedient will. Look at verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. The hardest thing and the most, the thing that requires the most strength in this life is to obey God when the going gets tough. Everybody falters when the going gets tough. We will obey God in times of plenty, but can you obey God in times of little? We will obey God. Now, now we're going to see that we even have a problem with obeying God when everything's perfect. Take the first Adam. The first Adam, one of the sadnesses of his tale is that he disobeyed God in paradise. He disobeyed God when everything was going his way. He disobeyed God when God had given him any tree from the garden except one. That's why the Lord Jesus came and demonstrated himself as better than the first Adam because not only he didn't come in a garden where he was full off of mad fruit. He defeated Satan when after 40 days, the Bible says, and he was hungry. Then his temptation of feed yourself against the program of God was what he resisted. Well, we see the obedient will is not an easy thing. He was just obedient. But that's a strength that we see right here. You say, why is that? First of all, because they offered him this mixture of drink, which is really somewhat like a painkiller. Somewhat like a painkiller here, this mixture of the wine with the gall. Two things could have been happening here. Either Jesus, it was a mockery, it was made so sour, he couldn't drink it, he didn't want to drink it. So he said, ah, man, it's bad enough y'all are nailing me up, but then you're going to give me trick wine. But what most people believe is that this was a, a drugged drink that really could have impaired his senses. So two things. Either Jesus was agreeing, I don't want painkiller. I want to take the full brunt of the sufferings of my, that my father gives me and therefore showing the obedience of his will. We'll get back to that. Or he was saying, I would drink it, but you've mixed it so potently that it could impair my senses slightly. And I want to have a clear head because I have more obeying of the father's will to do. 
One of the things that we see here is that he was dedicated to obeying God and wanted freedom to be able to follow God every nook and every cranny. See, some of us, we'll obey God, but we love to sort of move the bar so we can make obeying God easier. Well, what if I just? Well, maybe I can. Well, this ain't really the same thing, is it? Like we always are trying to sort of see how close to sin we can get without sinning. The Lord Jesus says, nope, I will take the full brunt because I'm fully committed to obeying the Father's will. Philippians 2 says it like this. Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Then it says, even death on the cross. What that's saying is, it's one thing to obey God to the point of death. It's another thing to obey God to the point of death, but the worst kind of death. Now you're talking another level of strength and obedience and will. All right, just shoot me real quick. I can take that one. No, we're going to torture you for hours. Oh, forget that. Uh, like, Like, that's... We see the strength of the Son of God and His ability to not only die, but to die a excruciating death and even reject the painkiller that could have made things easier, but might have jeopardized His ability to stay straight and level-headed for the rest of the task of being obedient to God. Will you take obedience that seriously? But not only that, we don't just see weakness through the prism, we don't even have a problem with the weakness we see. Through the prism, we don't just, we see the strength of an obedient will. But not only that, instead of a clown, we see a king. Look at, look at what it says here. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Stop. We know from John 19 that they didn't believe that this was King of the Jews. This was more mockery for some. When they looked at even Rome, when they put him up there, we just saw, well, we would have seen if we would have started back in verse 27, we would have seen that Rome said, this is the king, all right, let's make him a crown. And they made a crown of thorns and shoved it on his head. As they beat him, they were looking like, this is the king? (laughs) Yeah, king. They saw a clown. You look through the prism of the resurrection and you see a king. You see the irony that God is the one laughing. This is a king. John 1 said, man, we looked at him and we peeped his glory. This is the glory of one who existed before he became beatable and bleedable and pierceable. Revelation 17 and 19 says that he's not only a king, but he's the king of kings. He's not just, like, but they were laughing. They were clowning him. But through the resurrection, we understand why he is king. The angels could peep. And they said, holy, holy, holy. John 17, the Lord Jesus said, all right, Father, I've done everything. Now, lace me with the glory I had with you before the world began. My kingness. Get my kingness ready, the the visible kingness, 
because right now I'm about to prance down to, uh, to Golgotha in my clownness. And watch them clown me. This world does not see, they don't see what we see. They don't have the prism, nor the eyes. Do you see a clown like the soldiers did, or do you see the king? Not only that, do you see a sinner, or do you see a substitute? Look at verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Any passerby would have saw two robbers. I'm sure the robbers were up there cursing up a storm. Because what happened when you were on a crucifixion, people laughed at you, people mocked you, people spat on you, the animals were trying to nibble at you, and as you hung up there, I'm sure on the right or on the left, they were, the Bible says that they were hurling insults at him. I'm sure they were cursing, I'm sure in the agony and the pain of their own crucifixion. One of them we know looked at Jesus and said, come on, save us, save you and save us. And I'm sure people look and said, three sinners up there. But when you look through the prism, you see two sinners up there and one substitute. One substitute. One person who was up there in the place of sinners. I'm going to read you some scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In the middle, the substitute was one who knew no sin, but who had been made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, not his own. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. The substitute was not up there. For himself, he was up there for thugs. He was up there for cheaters and liars. He was up there for you. He was up there for me. We're just looking through the prison. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died. Like while we were sinners, while we were, like we belonged up there. And that's why when you know, like, you'll know when you're on point. You'll know when you're really saved. Because the, the one truth you'll never argue with is that you're a sinner and you deserve what Jesus got. There's a whole bunch of people like, I mean, uh, like they know they're going to hell, but they don't know why they're going to hell. I'm not going to hell because I'm a sinner. I'm going to hell because, like, I'm a sinner. <laughs> but then if you call them a sinner, oh, what? you ain't perfect. How are you going to judge me? Through the prism. Through the prism, without the prism, they saw failure. Through the prism, we, we see a fulfiller, a fulfiller. Look at this, verse 39. And those who passed by deriding him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Wait a minute, they saw a failure. They saw somebody who said he would do something, but I, ups, you ain't do it. I mean, it ain't like that's going to happen now. Looks like you fell short, homie. They saw a failure. Jesus is the fulfiller because 
he wasn't talking about that temple anyway. He was talking about the one that, through the prism, three days later was going to get up. He's like, come on, man. Like, I'm the better temple. When the Bible talks about fulfilling, sometimes it means I'll tell you what I'm going to do in advance and I'm going to do it. Ah, you fulfilled it. Other times, it's not a prediction. It is him filling up the, the, the largest possible meaning of something. So, Isaiah 7, right? The woman will be with child, right? It's the word that you could say virgin, right? Virgin could mean just a young woman of maritable age. She may or may not have had any kind of intercourse before. But you can look at the same one. So this, this young woman is going to be with child, and when he grows up, they're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was talking about an actual woman in Isaiah's day. And she wasn't a virgin, like the way we use virgin. She was the wife of a king, and it was on, I'm sure. The Lord Jesus, when he comes on, now... A actual virgin who's never known a man. That's the only reason why we know it, because Mary said, how is this? I haven't known a man, which meant ain't nothing ever happened with me. And the Bible says, nah, you, somebody who's never known him, will be with child, and they're going to call him Emmanuel. Now, back in Isaiah 7, he was a symbol that God was with them. Back here, when Jesus was born... This actually was God with us, not just a symbol that God's with us. Once again, he was the fullest possible meaning of that. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. That happened when he called Israel out of Egypt. But Jesus is the fuller meaning of out of Egypt, I will call my son, because when Herod was after him, they went and they parked in Egypt for a minute. And then out of Egypt, God called his real son, his only begotten son. He's a fulfiller. And so as the one who would destroy, the, who, who would have the temple destroyed was about to get up, and we only see that through the prism. Victim or victor, what do you see? Depends on whether or not you have the prism. Look, if you are the son of God, they said, come down from the cross. You look victimized up there. But if you're really who you say you are, come down. The Lord Jesus heard that before. If you are the Son of God, turn stones into bread. You look victimized by hunger. You're, you're able to make bread out of stones. Do it. Look at him here. You're the Son of God. Come down. If that was me. All right, I'm going to come down real quick, and then I'm going to show you the deal, and I'm going to get back up here. There's some, always some silliness going on in here. Let me keep going. Through the prism, do you see a fluke or do you see faithfulness? Look, 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 look. Not only didn't he come down, it says 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Do you see a fluke or do you see a flavor? Uh, 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 um, faithfulness. Wait a minute. Didn't he pull the trick of saving people when he was on earth? 
He can't save himself. This is like magicians and illusionists. They can do a trick that make it look like they can pull nothing, I mean something out of a hat. But in real life they can't do it. They can't do it for themselves. Pulling quarters out of their ear. Ah, get to the bus like, yo, can you spare me 50 cent? I, I seem to have lost my wallet. Yo, pull it out your, do the, um, the joint. Come on, man, I ain't got that, that quarter, like the, the, my tricky quarter. That's a fluke. That's what they were saying. They said, wait a minute. Do the saving act you used to do. On yourself, though. Ah, see, I knew it. You had me, though. That Lazarus. That Lazarus. I was wondering, but now that I'm looking at you, I knew it was a catch. But instead of a fluke... His not coming downness, his not saving himselfness, was the supreme act of faithfulness. Galatians 2, we were talking about no one is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And we looked at that, what they call genitive in the Greek. Is it a subjective or objective genitive? Is this our faith in Christ? We're saved or justified by our faith in Christ? When we look at it further, they say no. We're saved by the faithfulness of Christ. Him being faithful to his mission. Him being faithful to his father. Him being faithful to die and not get down when people said, get down, is how we're justified. So he says... His faithfulness was demonstrated because when people said, save yourself, he didn't. They saw a fluke. But through the prism, we see the supreme faithfulness. Look what it says here. He is the king of, excuse me, he cannot say, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew does not talk about the change of heart that one of the robbers had. Because Matthew doesn't want to detract from the intense agony. But you would go to Luke and you would see uh, where Jesus Christ. Christ, uh, his, his faithfulness to the mission and his, his willingness to forgive those who were uh, persecuting him caused a change in the heart of one of the, the, the robbers. Um, and therefore, that's why Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. From, from 9 a.m. to noon, there was light. From noon to three, that's six hours to the ninth hour, there was total darkness on the earth. Now let me tell you, I, I like this quote right here. I like this quote. Uh, uh, where is it? Where is it? Oh, where is it? Uh, Matthew Henry, his comment on this. Look what he says. He says, an extraordinary light gave intelligence to the birth of Christ. And therefore, it was proper that extraordinary darkness should notify his death. He is the light of the world. When the Lord Jesus was born, a shining light guided people to right where he was. The light of the world was here. 
it's interesting how God says, but when the death of the light of the world, quote unquote, a darkness covers the earth. Well, did we see someone who's helpless? No, through the prism we see someone who's high priest. Look what it says. It says here, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. This, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Listen to me real quick. Listen to me. Is this someone now who's helpless? That's what it looks like here. Crying out, God, even you've forsaken me. Somebody saying, wait, wait, let me go and give him a drink. Ah, wait, 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 see if Elijah comes. Leave him, leave him. Is this someone who's helpless? Nah, this, through the prism we see this is a high priest. And why do I say that? It's because there are two ways of looking at my God, my God. At least two or three ways we can look at my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? It comes from Psalm 22. Where even David said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So either Jesus was in such pain, he began to quote scriptures. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Maybe mysteriously, something happened with the relationship between the Father and the Son experientially. We know it really didn't happen. There's a mystery here because God, the Father and the Son, you can't alter their relationship because it's eternally immutable. But there's a sense in which Jesus Christ on the cross felt a, like God's displeasure towards sin and sinners because at that moment he was bearing our sin. So he said, God, why, have, like, why am I feeling so abandoned? One of the commentators said, I, can I propose something uh, that is a little more human here? And it's probably a hybrid of all of these. He says, in human experience, life goes on. As bitter tragedy enters into it, there comes time when we feel that God has forgotten us. When we are immersed in a situation beyond our understanding and feel bereft or absent of even God. It seems to me that this is what was happening to Jesus here. We have seen in the garden that Jesus knew only that he had to go on because to go on was the will of God. And he must accept what he could not fully understand. Here we see Jesus plumbing the uttermost depths of the human situation so that there might be no place that we might go where he has not been before. Hebrews says, see, like we have a high priest who can sympathize with us at every point because he's gone to every place on the map without sin. Every intense trial, the, the person who says, Dad, Jesus, but you don't know what it's like to feel like even God is not with you. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I screamed it out on the cross. So he, can, he, he knows what we're going through. You've got to have the prism. 
to not call him helpless right here, but to know he's just beefing up his high priestly resume so that when it's time to say, I know how low it can get, he could say, yeah, me too. Through the prism, basically, you see the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm coming to a close. 51. Listen. And behold, the curtain of the temple. Remember, he cried out, yielded up his spirit. We, like, there's, Matthew doesn't comment on him saying, to tell us die, it is finished. Uh, but we know that happened. He yielded up his spirit. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Stop. The way, the truth, and the light. Let me tell you why I say that. First of all, soon as he died, the Bible says that the curtain in the temple split from top to bottom. Now, one of the things that we realize is that that symbolized that the way to God was now open to all men and women. See, before then, there was a curtain that let you know, don't come back here. Before then, we were barred from God. Before then, different people were barred from God on different levels. Women were one way. Uh, Gentiles were another way. Uh, Jewish men were another way. Priests were another way. Only the high priest we just talked about the high priest, the great high priest. Only the high priest could go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. He only did that once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the Bible says that when he went, he just went to say sorry for messing up. I'm sorry on behalf of all of us for tripping on you, Lord. Well, this high priest, according to Hebrews, once again, please, y'all, get in your Bible and get rocked off of just how thick God is with his. Look, the Bible says when he went, he didn't go in offering sins for himself. But at this moment, he, he rips the curtain. He's the way. He's looking at every religious group and saying, I know, I, I, I know the cat that started you, but I'm the way. Like, the curtain never ripped until I did what I did. And after I did what I did, there was no reason for you to come along. <laughs> because the way to God is now through me. But he's the truth because it says, and when it happened, right? Look, it says here, uh, rocks were split. The tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So one of the things we see is that he's the truth because he really did raise. And the only way you raised is if God had said that you never erred, you never lied, you never cheated, you never stole. The only way he could get up from the grave as if he truly was all the stuff that he said he was and he truly do all the stuff that he said he do remember the guard said leave him he said he was the son of god now when he raised that means that it's true he is the son of god <laughs> he's the life how you think he raised and how do you think all the other bodies that got up when he raised got up looking through the prison so what's the point if you look through the prism, you're not complex, perplexed by the problem. You're not discouraged by a Savior who died because this Savior got up. And once you look through it, you don't see what everybody else sees. You don't see a fluke. You see his faithfulness. This is why we worship him. This is why we've trusted in him. Look what 
one of the guards who was a part of the original laughingstock clique, one of the centurions, one of the soldiers that probably put the thorns on his head with the crew, one of the soldiers that sat, verse 35, and kept watch over him. Verse 54 says, When the centurion and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. They were able to look through the prison. Resurrection changed the whole nature of what they had been involved in. (laughs) The Bible says that the disciples were, like, scared a little bit until the resurrection. Their whole lives switched. They probably went home and said, all right, babe, get the kids. I'm telling you all right now, I know I was half-stepping before. Jesus is alive. It's on. And so today, the question on the floor is, what are we going to do? Paint eggs? (laughs) Buy chocolates. Hunt for them. Get jelly beans out of our teeth. Or you're going to be impacted by the Jesus who stayed on the cross, was buried, and then got up. We preach this Jesus every week. We meet in our homes for various things, and we talk about this Jesus. I don't know what your past has been. I know mine. And I know a couple cats in here who used to wow out before they got convinced of a crucifixion that became the means by which we are promised to experience resurrection. And so today we remind you that our God is the living God. He is the way you're going to see God and not that lake of fire. He is the truth about everything he said, and he's got a whole 66 book collection of things that talk of him And he's true. He's the life. He's the way when your physical life leaves you, that your inner life that God has placed in everybody to either live with him in right relationship or be banished from him in what we call the second death. And the question on the floor is, I know you're cool, and I know we're hip, and I know we're cute, And I know we go to church. I know we've done a good job raising our kids and all of these works we could list. But the Bible says no one will be justified. No one will be able to stand before God and say, wait, let me just tell you. Let me just, wait, I got it right here. And pull out our list. First of all. I raised my um my brother's kids like when he because he was a deadbeat dad right so I took them in, like yo y'all, I'm telling you no 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 when everybody else was was jacking cats I stopped and I went to school I raised my son by myself when my when his mom was tripping uh, yo I stopped smoking weed for like three weeks <laughs> like nobody's gonna stand before God with anything and God say oh well then that's the case 
Come on in. Hey, watch out. Let me deal with the others who don't have as many good deeds as you. The Bible says everybody is going to come in empty-handed. And God's going to have a stack of books. Bring in the books. And he's going to have a book. I'm closing right now. The Bible says this is the book of life. In it are names of people who've been pardoned from all the stuff that they've done in all the books. This doesn't say you didn't do it. This just says that somebody else paid for it. And this is the... So this is the, the name of the people who their sins have been paid for. And God will be able to say... And itemize your sins, thought, word, and deed. And then come over and say, John Smith. Wait, wait, John Smith. Smith, Smith. 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 Try by my middle name, my middle name, Leroy. Leroy. John Leroy Smith. They call me Boom Boom on the block. Boom Boom B. None of that. Jesus is alive, y'all. And we worship him. We worship him. We worship him. Amen. 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 Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. After this, we will... Cap it off with communion, uh, which is only about a 15-minute process. Once again, if you if you have reservations somewhere.